this time, and we are going to turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. It's the place that we are this morning. If you're visiting with us or new to Northside, uh, the way that we go through the Bible is chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so um, as we come to passages that are a little more difficult, uh, we don't skip over them, but we just continue on in them. And I, I do want to say uh, from the get-go that last week was a difficult passage to preach through. It spoke of a lot of hard things. Um, with the millstone and the idea of cutting off your hand uh, and your foot and plucking out your eye. And uh, I kind of walked away feeling defeated after that message, and then I only grew more defeated when I looked at the next passage, because it's not necessarily a fun one to cover, um, but all of God's Word is helpful, amen? And as we go through the Word of God, I pray that our hearts would, would desire to receive from it what He has for us, um, so that we would walk in His ways Uh, to bring glory to his name. So let's uh, again ask the Lord to help us as we go through this time. As I pray, I would ask you to pray uh, that that you would receive what God has for you from this text on this day. God, we are thankful again to gather. We're thankful for your word. God, we're thankful for the missionary report that we just heard from Karen. And God, we thank you for the emphasis that her missions team has on translating your word so that these people can have a copy of the Bible in their language. And God, as we see the fervency and the the dedication that they have to translate so that these people can have your word, God, I pray that we would have the same fervency and dedication to, to live out your word that we have. God, help us today to understand that your word is timeless, and the truths within your word are helpful to us as we seek to walk in them. I do pray this morning, God, that as we go through this text, our hearts would be helped, that we would come under the authority of Christ and the teaching that he gives, that we would choose to walk in your ways, God, so that our lives could bring glory to your name. Thank you, God, for your kindness to us. Thank you for for showing us the path of life. Thank you for Christ, who you sent to be the payment for our sins so that we could be forgiven. God, I pray today that your spirit would speak to us now as he desires. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Today we will unpack a truth that has practical, spiritual, moral, and eternal implications. This truth has often been attacked, sought to be redefined, used and abused, and yet it still stands to this day. Many have neglected to understand the value of this gift that God has given And many have sought to enjoy the benefits of this gift without actually committing to it. But as we go through our time today, I pray that our hearts and minds would come under the authority of Christ on this matter of marriage, and that we would walk out of here today with the view that Christ has on marriage. Jesus, again, is on the move. He's seen in verse 1, leaving Capernaum and coming to the coast of Judea, on the far side of the Jordan. So this would have been an eastern route that Christ was traveling on. And as he traveled, we see that the people began to flock to him once again, and he began to teach them. Again, these unrecorded teachings of Christ are often things that we wish we could have, that we wish we could look into and understand. But it would be better for us, instead of hoping or wishing we had what we don't have, to apply what we do have. To take the word of God that has been revealed to us and preserved for us and to seek to live those things out for the glory of God. And so as Christ 
went on the way with his disciples, and as the people began to flock to him, the Bible says that the Pharisees came and they asked him a question that there was much debate over in that day. And if there was much debate in that day, can we agree that there is still much debate over these things in our day? The question that the Pharisees came asking was simply this. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Before we get too far into this, what does Mark say in the end of verse 2 was their reason for asking this? They were tempting him. So we have to understand again, as the Pharisees come on the scene, their desire was not to learn from Christ, but their desire was in some ways to seek to trip Christ up. This was a test. They they were tempting him, the Bible would say, and so their desire was not to truly learn, but their desire was to show that they had more knowledge or that they had better answers, or it shows their twisted hearts in asking this question so that they could understand how far they could go without actually breaking God's law. And as that was a problem then, can we agree that that's still a problem today? That instead of just receiving what God has given to us and believing the truths that he has given to us, we like to push the limits. It's like a child with their parents, seeing how far we can go before we actually get in trouble. And that's the heart of the Pharisees in this matter. So they weren't necessarily desiring to learn from Christ, but they were trying to trip Christ up and they were trying to further their own agenda when it came to this idea of marriage. And I want, us to, I want us to understand this morning that if that's our attitude toward God's law and God's holiness, then we're putting ourselves in a dangerous spot. If when we view the word of God, we're saying, but what does this actually mean to me? Or how far can I actually go and still be within the parameters of God's desires for my life? We're setting ourselves up for failure and we need to back away from that line and just again receive what God has made clear to us. And so they came with this question, and this question was widely debated. There were two main rabbis that were purveying uh, two prominent thought processes in that day. The first was Rabbi Shammai, who was more strict. He said that they needed to value marriage. They needed to work for their marriage. They needed to fight for their marriage and treat it as a gift that was given from God. And there was another rabbi named Rabbi Hillel who held a more loose interpretation of the law and of marriage. One was pushing for people to fight for marriage, and the other was happy to see marriage thrown out the window for the smallest of things. In fact, in Bible times, specifically in the Old Testament, a man could divorce his wife if she burnt his dinner. Now, let's be honest. Probably all of us have grounds for divorce this morning, right? We've all eaten some food that was burnt at one time or another. But doesn't that show the hearts of the people? That their heart was not to live after God's ordinance in marriage. Their heart was not to follow after God's design in marriage. But marriage was all about them. And if they were unpleased or unsatisfied at any moment in their marriage, especially the men in the Bible times, they could say, well, I'm done. And I'm going to write off this marriage. And I'm going to find another wife, another woman who suits my needs. It is interesting that especially in the Old Testament, for the Jewish people and for most other nations, that it was men who held the ball in their hands when it came to divorce. 
The man would be the one who would request the divorce. The man was the one who could determine if he wanted to keep control over his wife, even if he didn't love her any longer. The man was the one who in some ways gave permission in the bill of divorce as it was given to her to remarry. And in fact, the words of the decree would have been something along these lines that she is free to marry any man. And basically what the man would be saying is, I'm relinquishing my rights, I'm relinquishing my duties, and she is free by my word to then go and do what she wants. So we can see in Mark 10, especially in verse 12, it does seem that by the time Christ's day came along that women were allowed to push for divorce, especially in the Roman culture. And it could have been pushed for even as it was by the men for the most insignificant, insignificant of reasons. So as we think of divorce in our day, and we think about the complicatedness of the matter, let us understand that this is not a new phenomenon. The hardships that were, were around the idea of divorce in the Old Testament are still the hardships that we face in our day today. The hard hearts, even, that were the cause of divorce in the Old Testament is still seen as many of the causes for divorce in our day and age as well. And so the question, again, was this. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? In other words, Jesus, what is your view on divorce? And as Jesus begins to dive into the subject of divorce and marriage and divorce and remarriage, he then asks another question, which Jesus often did, and he simply says this, what did Moses command you? And they responded, well, Moses suffered or Moses was willing to write a bill of divorcement to put her away. And Jesus responds with this, it is true that Moses did write you a bill of divorcement. He did suffer to do this for you. But understand this, it was only and always because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, this was not God's plan or intention or desire or idea, but this was given to men because of sin. It was given not as a blank check of permission to do whatever you wanted, but rather it was given to repress ungodly desires and to regulate wickedness, abuse, and mistreatment. And so while we often look at divorce and think it's very simple across the board, Jesus understood in his day what Moses understood in his day, that divorce needed to be regulated, that we just can't get divorced because we're sick of being with someone or because we don't like our current situation or because we don't feel like we're in love any longer. If you've ever been to a marriage that I've performed, one of the things that we often say is that when we're ma- we don't stay married because we love, but we make the choice to love. Why? Because we're married. And sometimes love is hard. Sometimes love is costly. Sometimes love is uncomfortable. And Jesus was trying to draw these mind, the minds of the Pharisees back to the reality of what God intended in marriage. And so while the, or the, the Pharisees came with a question, Jesus probably answered them in a very frustrating way. Because they wanted to know what Christ's view on divorce was. And really what Christ does in this passage is outlines God's view of marriage and his desire for those who are married. And so Jesus says it's true. It's true that that Moses did write a bill of divorcement, but understand it was only because of the hardness of your heart. There's debate on what this idea of hardness of heart means. 
Is it the hardness of heart on the one who has caused the offense that has found themselves in sin or, or not willing to reconcile? Or is it the, the offense of the one who was on the receiving side of, of that trial or that injustice? The reality is, I think there can be hardness on both sides. I think the act of sin in marriage is proof of a hardness of heart. And honestly, I believe as well that the act of unforgiveness in marriage is also proof of a hardened heart. And so this is not clear-cut. It's not a simple, to-the-point matter as we sometimes desire for it to be. But there are many nuances that are involved in this. And as we go through our time together this morning, I pray that God would give us eyes to see His view of marriage. And that regardless of what has happened in our past, and regardless of where we are right now, that we would desire to walk in God's view of marriage. That we wouldn't say, oh, because of my past, I should be written off. Because that's not what God says about you. But rather, in all things, He's given forgiveness. He's given grace. And our desire should be to show that grace to those that we are in the closest of relationships with. So from here on out, Christ goes on to talk with all who will hear about the topic of marriage, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time. We'll get back to the subject of divorce in the end of this, but sometimes, as it is in the case of the Pharisees, they were more concerned with what God had made a concession for rather than understanding what God had commanded. So my prayer this morning is that we would understand what God has commanded and that we would seek to walk in that truth for our good, for the good of those that we're married to, for a display of the gospel in the world and ultimately for the glory of God. So the big idea this morning is this. Marriage is a gift from God and it needs to be valued as such. Marriage is not a throwaway relationship, but it is ultimately a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we could say that Christ had a high view of marriage. And it's with this view that God desires for us to walk in so that our marriages, so that our lives in every way can bring glory to Him. So this morning we're going to look at marriage. We're going to see what Christ says uh, with, with authority on this matter. And I want to start in verse number 6. We've gone through the first portion of this already. And Christ begins saying this, but from the beginning of creation, but from the beginning of creation. Now, as you read through the Bible and you see a phrase like that, this should catch our attention. If we were to turn back to Genesis 1, we would understand an overview of creation. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we would see in more details what God had set up in creation and how he desired for things to move forward. We understand that Adam was created and God said for the very first time that something was not good. He said, I've created Adam and it is not good for him to be alone. And so as we see the story of creation unfold, we see that God then causes Adam to go into a deep sleep and he takes one of the ribs out of Adam and he closes up the flesh instead thereof. And from that rib, he created a woman who was to be a helpmeet for Adam. And what was her name, church? Wow, I think we need to go back to Genesis. I'm going to ask you again, what was her name, church? Eve. It was Eve. And God commanded them in the garden, in the place of perfection as they were created in innocence, that they were to be one flesh. 
to multiply and to fill the earth with children, to walk together, to serve one another, and to worship God in oneness. And that was God's original design and desire in marriage. And church, can I say that that is still God's design and desire in marriage today? That he desires that we walk in oneness, that he desires that we serve one another, that he desires that we worship him together. And so when Jesus says this phrase from the beginning, he's not just making a statement about marriage, but we need to understand that he's making a statement about the writings of Moses, about the Torah, and ultimately about the word of God. As a side note, for those who argue that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are merely allegory, understand if that's your position, I would say that you're doing yourself a huge disservice. Why? Because in Genesis 1 through 11, we have the origins of many things, not just creation, not just marriage, but we have even the beginnings of the ideas of sin and the ideas of one who would come to redeem us and restore us because of our sin. And so as Christ says this phrase, from the beginning, he then goes on to give some descriptions about marriage. I want to see these three things briefly this morning on the idea of marriage as God established it. And then I want to look briefly into another New Testament passage to see the beauty of what marriage represents. And we've got to move quickly. The first thing in verses 6 and 7 is that marriage is defined by God. Again, it says this, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The first idea that I want us to understand is that marriage is defined by God. And if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. He who creates has the right to define. Do we believe that today? That he who creates, meaning God, the creator, the originator of all things, has the right to define things how he wants them defined. And I want us to think about that for a moment and let ourselves be consumed with the idea of who the creator is and what he has done. It's no secret that in recent years especially, this idea of marriage has been attacked at its very core and from every side. The desire to redefine what God has established and define it, uh, and I'm sorry, the desire to redefine what God has established and defined is an act of a rebellious heart. But this has been the issue from the beginning with humanity, hasn't it? Rebellion against God has always been our problem, our thoughts that we can do something better, that we can define it in a simpler way, that we know what's best for us has always been the problem with man, and that is seen and understood from the very beginnings of the Bible in the book of Genesis. But Christ says, as he's defining marriage, that from the beginning, this is the way that it was meant to be. That from the beginning, God made them who? He made them male and female. And he put them together in the ordinance of marriage that they would walk together in oneness, pointing each other to God as they walked on their way and as they worshiped his holiness day in and day out. Now, this idea or this definition of marriage is unpopular. This message is labeled as hate speech in our world today. This message is one that has caused many fights and even lawsuits, but this message is one that God proclaimed, and if God proclaimed it, then we would do well to live within it. Again, I want to make this statement. If marriage was designed by God, which we believe it was, then marriage is best defined by God, and we believe that it is. And so as culture seeks to push its agenda 
We must stand firm while standing in love. Paul goes into this idea of the sinfulness of, of marriages that do not look like the marriage that God ordained between men and men and women and women are things that are an abomination towards God. If you were to turn to Romans chapter 1, you could read God's heart on that matter. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is what is God's position from his heart on those things? We know he's adamantly opposed to any marriage that does not reflect the marriage that he set up. But we also have to ask the question, does God love those who are in marriages that are not, that are not moving forward in the way that he set up? Absolutely, he does. And so as marriage was defined by God, we understand that God loves those who have walked outside of his will, and we can see that from the beginning of the Bible as well. When Adam and Eve walked against God, away from God, and in sin, who was it that performed a sacrifice for them to get back in a right relationship with God? It was God himself. And who was it that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, chose to send his son so that we could be forgiven and renewed and restored in a right relationship with him. Well, it was, again, God. Nevertheless, this idea of, of marriages, homosexual marriages, any other sort of marriage that is not following the principles of God's word is something that we face on a daily basis. And friend, there, there are sects of Christianity that all they do is hate people who find themselves in a marriage that's not like their own. All they do is condemn and understand, church family, that it's not our place to hate and it's not our place to condemn, but it's our position or our, our place to walk in love towards those people. There's a book that was put out a few years ago. It's titled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The author, Rosaria Butterfield, uh, was a, a lady who was a lesbian and she set out with a vendetta against Christians and against churches to write an article that would prove that Christians, though they say they are about love, in reality, hate those who think differently than they do. And so she contacted a church and a pastor and said, hey, I'm writing this article and I'd love to sit down with you and your family to express my views and to hear your views on this matter of marriage and how you believe it's defined and how I believe it's defined. She came on edge. She came uh, with a chip on her shoulder, so to speak, ready to be very defensive in, her, her ma in making her case towards the idea that marriage and the definition of it has changed and morphed over time. As she came and met with this pastor and his wife, she was met with graciousness and love. In every area where she sought to cause an argument and to cause a fight and to push back, she was met again with graciousness and love. And meeting after meeting, she came and met with this pastor and his wife to the point where eventually she gave herself to God. Because that's what the gospel does. It takes those who are far from God and it draws them close. And so while we can probably all articulate our view of marriage and how we believe it needs to be, and I think we should be able to do that, my question that I would ask is, is do we have the heart of love that God has for those who find themselves in a marriage that God would not approve of? Nevertheless, regardless of what culture says, regardless of what we feel in our own selves, we must understand that marriage is defined by God and we should walk in marriage as it is defined. I find it also interesting that many times we like to pick apart marriages that would be of a homosexual nature while we ourselves don't walk in the ordinance of marriage that God has set for us. We like to pick apart marriages that, that we would say the Bible would oppose while not seeing 
that we are opposed to the Bible in some of the ways that we live in marriage as well. As we think about the roles that God has given in marriage, we understand that he created with distinction and he gave roles with distinction. And our desire should be to walk in those. Evan and I were talking about this the other day and I appreciated the thought that he had that it's, it's equal souls but different roles. And we understand that there's a difference between men and women, right? Who understands that this morning? We understand that. We, I got nervous for a minute. Um, we also understand that, that God has given us different roles as we were created. You believe that as well, right? And so rather than examining everybody else's marriage to say where they are wrong, maybe it would be better for us to look at our marriages to see if we're walking in a way that God has ordained in a way that would bring glory to his name. So as we think about this idea of marriage being defined by God, it is our prerogative as believers, as Christ followers, that we would walk in such a way that we show the blessedness of marriage. And let's agree that sometimes marriage doesn't feel like a blessing, right? Maybe I just told too much about myself. I don't know. (laughs) But marriage is a blessing. And we understand that. Why? Because it was given by God. And what does James tell us? That our God in heaven gives good gifts. Now, how we use those gifts is up to us. How we corrupt those gifts is up to us. And it should be our desire to walk in a way that brings glory to his name. Verse 7, it says, After this marriage takes place, this man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. So we understand that marriage is defined by God and that it is to be between a man and a woman. It's not between two men or two women, but it's between a man and a woman. And then God says that when they're married, they shall leave their father and their mother, and the man specifically in this passage will cleave unto his wife. And one of the things that I find interesting in marriages is that we often think, and, and there's a part of this that's true, that when my kids get married, my family begins to grow. And there's a part of that that's a reality. But I think what Jesus is telling us here, that when my kids get married, what are they starting? Their own family. And so when the Bible says here that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, it's almost as if there's a separating of relationships. This doesn't mean you can't go to your parents' house for dinner or you can't you know, receive Christmas presents from your parents still, because I like getting Christmas presents, but it means that there is to be a division. That no longer do the mom and dad have authority in the lives of their children because they have made their own family, their own relationship, and they need to walk in that as in, in a way that pleases God. One of the things that I talk about in great lengths in premarital counseling is this idea that when you are married, you are your own family. No longer do your parents dictate what you do and what you don't do. Now, should you still honor your parents? You should. Should you still love your parents? You should. But you're your own family. This is one thing that that both Brianna's parents and my parents have done really well at, and they're not here, so I usually talk bad about them. I'll talk good about them today. They put zero pressure on us when it comes to family functions and family events and family gatherings. Do you know what their priority is? That you have your own family now. And it's okay for you to make your own traditions. It's okay for you to do things in a way that is good and best for your family. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that when you are married, when this husband and wife come together and they begin their own family, they leave their parents and they cleave 
to each other. And this gets into the idea of of one flesh, which we're going to see in a moment. But this is how God has defined marriage. And we would be best to walk in that. And so what does this mean in verse number 7? Kids who are married, hopefully you're adults, although I was married at 19 and I don't think I was an adult yet, um, don't lean on your parents. It's okay for you to go to your parents for assistance, but don't lean on them to solve every argument and to fix every problem. Lean on your spouse. Why? Because that's who God has given you. And parents, butt out. It's okay for your kids to make their own decisions. The best time to give your kids advice as they're going through difficult situations is when they ask for your advice. This is how God has desired for marriage to be. This is how God has defined marriage, and we would do best to walk within the way that he defined it. So the first thing we see this morning is that marriage is defined by God. The second thing we see is that marriage is sexual, and this is probably not new news to you. But this is one of the reasons that I, I said, if you want your kids to go downstairs, this is probably a good message for that. As Jesus continues to explain or describe marriage, he says in verse number seven, again, I want to read it. He says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. And then he goes on to say, what, what therefore God hath joined together Let no man put asunder. Marriage is sexual. The intimacy that God has designed for marriage is only to be experienced within the confines of marriage. I'm going to say that again because, again, in our world, we have twisted this idea of what sex is and the the relationships that sex is allowed to be in. And we would agree or, or say from a Bible's perspective that the sexual relationship is only to be had between a man and a woman who are husband and wife. That is God's ordinance of marriage. That is the way that God desires for us to walk in. And certainly this idea of one flesh that God speaks about in the Old Testament and that Jesus reiterates in the New Testament is more than the idea of a sexual relationship. But let us also understand that it also is a sexual relationship. That as a husband and wife come together, it's not just talking about being in a relationship and and being under a, a family or a household in their tax status, right? He's talking about more than that. He's talking about the unity and the oneness and the intimacy that he has allowed for men and women to experience in the bonds of marriage. And so as we think about this idea or this command that God gives, for this man shall a man, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they twain, two, shall be one flesh, so they are no more two, but they are one. When God commanded for Adam and Eve to be one flesh, understand, church, that it was purposeful. It was purposeful in that God desired for the earth to be filled with people, to be fruitful and multiply, he said. And that only happens through procreation between a male and a female. But it was also purposeful in that he commanded this idea of one flesh because it talks about the close intimacy that a husband and wife are to experience with one another and no one else. It's speaking to a union, and a husband and wife are to walk in unity together, pointing each other to Christ through everything that they face. I think this idea of being one flesh 
is interesting in some ways because it shows how the two genders came together to begin with. In the garden, there was one that became two. And in marriage, there is two that what? Becomes one. And so again, it's showing God's intention. It's showing his desire that that they would walk together in this way to be one flesh in intimacy, to be one flesh emotionally and spiritually, that they would walk together in oneness. And this, in part, again, is why God's desire for Christian marriage is that marriage would not just be between a man and a woman, but that marriage would be between two believers. Because it's hard to be of one flesh when you're going in opposite directions. And, and that may sound harsh, and I, I hope it doesn't in any way. It's just simply what the Bible puts forth. And do we agree today that God's word always defines what's best? I believe that we do. I hope that we do. So marriage was created by God, it's defined by God, and it's defined in some ways in a sexual way that a husband and wife are to come together to be one flesh, and that is best seen in their sexual relationship, but it's also seen in every other aspect of their relationship. As we understand God's desire for a husband and wife, especially this idea of one flesh, understand this, that any act of sex outside of marriage would be defined as sin. This is not simply sex with another person, but it's taking part in an inappropriate sexual activities with yourself, not just in deed, but also in thought. And I think if there's one area where we become lax in in our Christian lives, we understand that God's desire for us is to be faithful to our partner in a physical sense. But church, can I share with you today that God's desire is for us to also be faithful in our heart and in our mind towards our spouse? that we would not lust after another individual who we are not in the bonds of marriage with, that we would not crave to, to find fulfillment in another person or in another thing outside of the one that God has given us. And so this idea of of marriage being sexual, it it talks about the, the deep intimacy that we have one with another. And this intimacy is, is only meant to be experienced one with another. So things like pornography or erotic books or any form of entertainment that would cause you to become lustful in your desires towards another person, the Bible says it is sin. I understand that there are many who probably have struggled with these things, and there are many probably even here today who still struggle with these things. Can I tell you that God can give freedom from those things? That you don't have to struggle? that you don't have to find yourself as a slave. But you can find freedom. And you may say, Dan, this is really awkward. You think it's awkward on your end. But it's true, isn't it? And I would encourage you today, if you're struggling with any sort of sexual sin in your life, the best way to continue on in that sin is to keep it a secret and let nobody else bear that burden with you. The best way to find freedom in that sin is to give it to God and find accountability with somebody that you can walk through that thing with. 
Hebrews 13.4 tells us that marriage is honorable in all, or it is to be honorable in all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. That means that our sexual relationship with our spouse is to be something that draws us closer to Christ. And I will tell you this right now. If in your life you are tempted or, or chasing after things of a sexual nature that God has not permitted and desired for you, then your marriage will suffer the consequences. You will find brokenness. You will find heartache that it's often hard to recover from. But the Bible says he who confesses his sins and forsakes his sins is wise. So marriage is defined by God. And then secondly, today, marriage is sexual. And as a side note, as we think about the generation that is downstairs, parents, it is your job to talk to your kids about these things when they are ready to receive them. Is it awkward? It is. Is it uncomfortable? Certainly it can be. Is it needed? Yes. And will it happen in other ways if you don't take care of it? It absolutely will. So who do you want your children to understand sex from? Yourself or their peers? Who do you want your kids to define a sexual relationship by the, the, what their, their friends have read about or seen on the internet or what the word of God says and in a way that mom and dad are living in it. If you would like help with resources on that, I'm certainly happy to help in that way. But as we wrap up this idea and everyone's breathing a sigh of relief on marriage being sexual, just a few more things to think through. First off, sexual intimacy is exclusive. It's to be between a man and a wife not before marriage, and nobody else after marriage, even if it's in your mind. Secondly, sexual intimacy is a beautiful gift that God has given. And church, I would encourage you to enjoy it in the way that God has given it to you. It's a good gift, and he desires for us to delight in our partner, the partner that we believe that he has given to us. And if you truly want to be one flesh in your relationship moving forward without anything prohibiting you, then take care of your sexual relationship and enjoy it in the way that God has given it. Sexual intimacy is not to be a thing, or I'm sorry, it is a thing that is often abused. And as believers, we need to avoid that. We need to understand the intimate relationship that it is, and we need to guard it with caution. Sexual intimacy is not a weapon to use in fights, and you may chuckle at that idea, but can I tell you how many people I have sat with where sex is not enjoyable to them with their partner because it's a weapon that they've, they've used as a sword rather than something that God has given them to bring them closer together and closer to him. And that sexual intimacy is something that often goes untalked about until there's a problem. Can I encourage you today to be courageous? That if in your relationship with your spouse, with your partner, there is a problem there, then be open and honest and seek to walk together in oneness, in unity, even in the things that are most difficulty. And then finally this morning, sexual intimacy is for those who are married. Anything outside of that will bring unwanted problems, 
But if you abstain until you are married, then you will experience how God intended for you to experience it. If you're currently involved, then I would encourage you to stop and seek forgiveness and do it God's way starting today so that you can live to the honor and glory of God in every area of your life. You say, well, that's difficult. And I understand that. It is difficult. Sometimes the most difficult things bring the greatest blessing. As we think through this idea of sexual intimacy, church, I pray that we would be a sexual, sexually healthy church. Not that this is something we're going to talk about all the time, because I promise you we're not. But I do pray that, that we would understand these things and seek to live in these things as God has given them to us. So, so marriage is defined by God. Secondly, marriage is sexual. Finally, this morning, marriage is permanent. Verses 9 through 12, Jesus continues on. I, it says this, what, the, what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter, and he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Tough passage. But the words of Christ are always meaningful. And the words of Christ are always helpful. So as we understand this last section, we understand that marriage is intended to be permanent. In the end of this description of marriage, Jesus adds some words that help us understand the weight of the marriage covenant. And to some way in in Christian marriages, these words are often affirmed and reiterated. And the words are simply this, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. This was not in the original decree of marriage back in Genesis But this is something that Jesus spoke forth to strengthen the idea of the bond of marriage that God has given. Remember, what was the question that the Pharisees came asking? Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? And then Jesus goes on and defines marriage. He talks about the intimacy of marriage. And then he gets into this section where he's reiterating this idea that marriage is to be permanent. What God hath joined together. So we would say that marriage is not just recognized by the state. It's not just about a license that you receive from the town clerk that you've got to turn in or else you're not legally married in their eyes. But we would say that marriage as defined by God is sexual and it is meant to be permanent. That was God's desire as he established marriage in the garden between the first man and woman who were Adam and Eve. And so marriage is meant to be permanent. And as Jesus ends his speech to the Pharisees, the Bible says that they go into the house and the disciples ask him again of this matter. Now, I think this is another one of those instances where Jesus was like, come on, guys, like, leave me alone, right? But they ask. They ask again of this matter. And so Jesus simply says, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Now, are those words hard to understand? They're not. But would we agree today that there are many nuances in divorce where blanket statements often are not helpful? Would you agree with that? I think we would. And so as we understand Christ's words here, he says, if you're divorcing your spouse for for no just cause and in 
Christ's words, the only just cause was for adultery, for sexual sin. And I don't think this just has to be a, a physical act of sexual sin. I believe it can be a mental or an emotional act of sexual sin that takes place between two people who are not married. Jesus says if a husband commits adultery, his wife is free to divorce him. And if a wife commits adultery, then the husband is free uh, to divorce her. And, and what is Jesus saying? That every couple that has experienced these things should go out and get divorced. Is that what, is that what Jesus is saying? No. That's not at all what Jesus is saying because there are many relationships where these atrocities have been experienced and the bond of marriage has been able to be repaired and restored and those people are again able to walk in oneness and unity regardless of what happened in the past. But on the flip side of that coin, there are also many marriages where restoration is not possible. And so Jesus again says that because of the hardness of your heart, Moses gave the allowance for divorce. Now, this isn't the only passage that talks about this. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul also deals with the idea of divorce, and it has to do with cases of abandonment. Now, the example Paul uses is if an unbelieving husband is married to a believing spouse, and he basically abandons her, then she's free to go and get a bill of divorcement against him. Why? So that she can be taken care of in marriage and is free to, to walk on in her life without having that sin held against her. And so what does that tell us? That, that Jesus says this is the reason for divorce, but then Paul goes further and says, hey, but this is also a reason for divorce. And just as sexual sin can be multifaceted, can't neglect and abandonment be also multifaceted? It certainly can be. And so what is, what is my judgment on the idea of divorce? The divorce is a very difficult thing to say this is the road and this is the only road and there's no grace outside of this. I think because of the, the nature of these sins that Paul describes and the nature of the sin that Jesus describes, that there is multiple reasons within those where a, a, a divorce would be permitted but understand again this, that that is not God's ultimate desire and that fighting for your marriage through those things is the best thing. What has happened in our culture today is exactly what was happening in the Old Testament. A husband would say, basically, I'm no longer satisfied with my spouse and I want a divorce and the papers are drawn up and the divorce agreement is signed and given and they walk away from each other. And we could agree that that's very much what happens in our society today. But from a Christian perspective, it would be better for us to focus on what God intended versus what God has allowed. Instead of dwelling on our heart's desire in a moment, we would be better to focus on God's desire for us as His created beings. Now, if you are divorced or if you've ever talked with somebody that is divorced, Regardless of how bad the situation was, there is still grief and pain that comes with every divorce. There's baggage that comes along with those things. God's desire is, first off, for us not to experience those things. But secondly, if we do experience those things, His desire is for us to allow His grace to wash over us so that we no longer have to carry those things around. And so if you're divorced here today, much of Christian culture can make you feel like you are a second-class citizen in the family of God. But can I tell you today, that is not the case. 
And as Jesus says here, he who marries after a divorce, if it wasn't for a sexual sin, Jesus says he commits or she commits adultery. But I don't believe the Bible would define that new marriage as a continual adulterous relationship. I do find that it's something that God would forgive and move past because what other sin does God hold against us after it's been forgiven? None. And so understanding God's desire, understanding God's intent, understanding God's parameters is helpful for us and living in those things is best. I want to give you several things as we wrap up this idea of marriage being permanent and certainly not every scenario can be covered in what should have been a 40-minute sermon. And so if you have questions afterwards, I, I would love to sit down and talk with you. But first off, God's intent for marriage from a Christian perspective is that it would take place between believers and that it would be permanent. That's God's desire in marriage. Secondly, God's permitting of divorce was never intended to promote the idea, but to protect those who found themselves in very hard situations. It was a concession to regulate the divorces that were happening, not an option to run to when you've had a bad day. And again, that's what was happening in Bible times, and that's what's happening in our world today. Number three, God's love and acceptance of those who have been divorced and remarried needs not to be questioned. You are not a second-class Christian, and your life is not doomed, but rather begin again and live as you now are for the glory of God. And so if you've been divorced and remarried, don't live in the past. Live in the present and say, from this point on, my marriage is going to be used for the glory of God, regardless of what has happened to me before. This is where I am now. And aren't you thankful for the grace that God gives for a new day and new things that we experience? Number four, in some cases, it is better for those who are divorced to stay single and to do so for the glory of God. In every situation where divorce takes place, Remarriage is not always the best option. Sometimes staying single is the best option. And you should follow God as He leads in your heart. The next one is every situation of divorce that I've ever talked through has had many nuances. Again, blanket statements by onlooking Christians are often not helpful, but each should be examined case by case. And then the final thing this morning is simply this. Wherever you are today, fight for your marriage. You may feel like your marriage is on the brink of failure. Fight for your marriage. You may be an unfaithful spouse or have an unfaithful spouse. Fight for your marriage. You may be in a situation where you feel alone and abandoned and neglected. Fight for your marriage. That is what God would say to you and all of us do a really good job of fighting in our marriage, right? But what if we turn those fights around to fight for the marriage that God has given us? You may look at the, the people around you or a person that you work with and say, man, if I only had that, if I was only married to him or only married to her, understand, child of God, that if you are currently married, then the marriage that God wants for you is the marriage that you are currently in. Fight for that marriage. God's desire is that marriage would be permanent. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I, I do want to read you these verses. Starting in verse 22, the Bible, again, through the Apostle Paul, gives an outline of what marriage is to look like, and he says this, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself forth, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And then Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I speak to you concerning Christ and the church. Paul says, I'm giving you this illustration of what marriage is to look like because that's what I desire for my relationship with you to look like. That it would be a sanctifying relationship, that it would be a holy relationship, that it would be a relationship that takes priority and precedence above every other relationship, that God would use this relationship to make you what I have desired for you to be. And as we think about our relationship with Christ, and the salvation that He has provided, and the work that He has done in us, I would ask you today, are you allowing that work to be done in your marriage? Is your marriage sanctifying you, making you look more like Christ? Are you walking in holiness and in righteousness after the commandments of God in this covenant of marriage that He has given you? Are you loving husbands? the wife that God has blessed you with, and wives, are you serving husbands in the way that God has designed and ordered? You say, why does God tell husbands to love and wives to serve or submit? Because men and women feel love in very distinct and different ways. If a man is disrespected, and this speaks to the ego problem that we as men have, but if men feel disrespected, then it ruins them. We're weak individuals. And as strong as we like to think we are, and as strong as we like to to let others think we are, we are weak individuals. And if we feel disrespected, we begin to crumble. But men, understand this, that if, if you're not loving your wife, then that also causes her to be, have feelings of weakness and frailty. And when a husband has feelings of weakness and frailty, and a wife has feelings of weakness and frailty, what happens to that marriage? It begins to crumble. So God has given us distinct roles to walk in so that our marriages would ultimately be a representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can be in a relationship with Him, though we don't deserve it. And I pray that if we are in a relationship with Him, that we would walk in our other relationships in a way that brings glory to His name. As we close here this morning, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're probably thinking to yourself, wow, 
I could have done a lot better things with my time this morning than sit through this. But can I tell you today that, that the God who ordained marriage because of the hardness of men's hearts is also the same God, catch this, that ordained forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. And friend, if you don't know him, it's our desire today that you would understand that you are deeply loved by the God of the universe. And that his desire is for you to experience restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness that can only come through Jesus Christ. As we close with a song in just a moment, if you have questions about how Christ can be your Savior, I would encourage you to meet me at the back and together we'll go through the Word of God. For those of us who know Christ and specifically those of us who are married, I pray that we would evaluate our own marriages at this moment and ask ourselves the question, am I living in the marriage that God has blessed me with right now for His honor and His glory? And if you do, then you'll experience the true blessedness of marriage that only comes when we submit to His authority on the matter. God, we ask that You would work in our hearts this morning. May You use Your Word for Your glory and our good. Work in our hearts. If there's any here today who don't know Christ, God, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. For those of us who are married, or maybe even those of us who aren't married but, but are desiring that relationship, God, may we guard ourselves when it comes to this matter so that in all ways and in all things, our lives will bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray.